0: Hey gang, it's John. Thank you for joining us for a very, very special episode of Book Club. One of my favorite former guests is music writer, John Azlewood. I love that guy. Now I discovered him because I'm not British. And he's one of the talking heads on this show that I really got hooked on on Axis TV called Rock Legends. He's on other shows too, but just the way he talks and the things he says, and the really fascinating way he goes about this. I thought he was so interesting. So about three years ago, John came on and we just rapped about music for a while. Well, now he's back. I've wanted to have him back for all this time, but he's back now because he's just written a book called Joy Division and New Order Decades. I think that's what it's called anyway. It's written out as Joy Division plus sign New Order colon decades. It comes out on October 7th. And what this book is, it's almost kind of like a coffee table book because it's so jam packed with rare and unseen photographs of everybody in the band, all different stages throughout the years. Now we all know, I think every member of both bands pretty much has written at least one book telling their side of this dramatic story. John's book to me is sort of a distillation of all of those stories told in one voice and told, you know, honestly, without judgment, not taking a side. It is such a fantastic book about such a great. I like Joy Division. I love New Order. It also includes reviews of all of the albums as he goes along, which is so interesting. Done in the way that only John can do. I just think he's a fantastic writer and a fantastic mind, musical mind. And I've been wanting to do this for, have him back for so long. That I did. We finally made it happen because of this book, thanks to it. And we talk about some other artists at the end because I wasn't going to waste the chance to have John on the show again, okay? I could do this like every year. Anyway, check out the book. But firstly, enjoy this conversation. I loved it. I love everything John does, okay? Okay. So, okay. Well, then for starters, obviously, the first question has to be whose idea was it to write this book? Did someone assign this to you or was it your idea?
1: Um, I was I was actually assigned. I was assigned in, in I'd, I'd written a book on Radiohead for the same people, which was meant to come out. I wondered about this. I saw it on somewhere, but it's not out yet. Right. It's not out. No, it was meant to come out. But then the pandemic scuppered that because the public in the, the, the publishing industry ground to a halt. And nothing came out. Mm-hmm. And it's still it's still waiting to to be released and it obviously needs a bit of updating because it's now two years old. But uh, in the meantime, in the meantime, they said they liked the Radiohead book so much. Why don't you write a book on Joy Division in New Order? And I said, yes, we'll do that. Yeah. Because that, of course, covered a second lockdown. Now, I don't know how that was for, for you, but it meant uh, for us, there was it was homeschooling for children. It was okay. not going out. There was no concerts. There was nowhere to go. So, of course, you couldn't do the traditional writer thing and sit in the, in the coffee shop feeling very romantic about your profession. So so what I did, I did it, I went in the car, drove 400 metres up the road and sat in the car typing away on my laptop. Really? For, for the entire summer, it was a book written in a car. And there's, not <laughs> much, there's not much dignity there, John, but, uh, you know, these things had to be done. And I had to get it. I had to get out
0: as well. That is great. That is great. Now I read the book. I read it on my phone, which yeah. I know um, it ruins sort of the ambiance of it because a big part of the book are the pictures, which I Absolutely. could see. But I'm kind of zooming in and out on my little <laughs> phone, trying to see every little thing. So, how did you get? Did the publisher have access to all these great photos, or? What was well the, thinking? The, the great
1: what happened was was that i mean it's a, it's a big book it's a heavy hardback book um and uh, it, it looks it looks beautiful it absolutely looks beautiful there are people people may not like the prose but they cannot deny the beauty of it and i pr- i provided a picture list for the publishers. Mm -hmm. taking it taking account of incidents that i would mentioned in the book and a sort of time frame too because the visual aspect is so important and then I put the captions on and they did absolutely fantastic research Mm -hmm. to cover all areas because if you do a book like that you know you're going to end up with 100 photos of New Order and Joy Division playing live which is fabulously dull (laughs) <laughs> You're going to end up with these studio sets, fabulously dull too. But if you trawl a little bit deeper, you will get some fantastic pictures, particularly from two bands who their image was not based around the people. Their image was very much based around the artwork the of point. their records. Mm-hmm. So almost as people, they're, they're, there's almost something quite mystical about them, I think. Mm-hmm. That's true. Did you now? When did you have
0: to be persuaded into this? You mentioned having seen Joy Division earlier. I mean, nobody doesn't like these bands, but were you passionate about it? Are these bands you already knew a lot about?
1: No, I was incredibly passionate about it because the story bizarrely hasn't been told properly. All the band members, not all, but merely all the band members have written their side of the story. You know, the singer in Joy Division's wife wrote a book about it. The drummer has written two books. (laughs) But if you put the whole lot together, then you get some kind of reasonably objective picture because the actual story of the band and the relationship within the band Uh, Is truly fascinating. There's something slightly Faustian about it, too. And there's something tragic about these friends from primary or elementary school, as you would have it,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: growing up together, being incredibly successful, being different, and then falling apart in this incredibly acrimonious and I think unnecessarily acrimonious way. So it's a story not just of music but of, of people too. And the whole tale hasn't really been told in, in succinct fashion.
0: I agree. I When I was telling my listeners that I was talking with you again, one of them, Rob, uh, replied, you know, everyone's written books. Is there really more to be had about this story? And I said, the thing that I think is kind of magical about what you've done here." is that it's a distillation of all of the stories. You were just saying that everyone's written, like I read Hookie's book, Substance on New Order, which is just a doorstop. It's huge, yes. but it's wonderful. Yes. But yeah. um, it, yours is a distillation of all of these different stories coming together to form one narrative. And that's what I thought, why I think this book in particular is essential is because you're just going gonna to either get Bernard's side or Hookie's side or Stephen's yes. side or whatever, but this is more of a complete story. And thankfully, yes. it's not as long as Pete as Peter Hook's
1: book. <laughs> no, no. I mean, both Pete, <laughs> of Peter you know. Hook's books. He did fantastically well to get. You're right. Yes. You know, they're both <laughs> they're both doorstops. But I mean, they're yep. very detailed. Mm-hmm. They give a they they give a very good time framework of what would happen. Because sometimes these when when you're talking about a long bound dates are fuzzy, but they weren't fuzzy with Peter Hook. He for for all his waywardness later on, and for all his. his his fondness of drink and drugs. He was the meticulous one. He was the one who drove them around in their early days. He was the one who made sure they get to gigs everyone has someone like that and of course the fact that he was the, the most rebellious the rock and roll outlaw of the group almost makes it more ironic too mm-hmm. because he was also ensuring that they get to the studio that they get to concerts and yeah. literally driving them there
0: yeah yeah it's true okay i have notes here i took some notes and i wanted to ask you about some of the um things that stood out to me on the in the book i so first of all let's talk about ian and joy division you mentioned in there that he has a fit after getting in a fight with Bernard over a duvet cover. Yes. And yes, was that the that couldn't have been the first time he realized he had seizures, or was it?
1: I mean, it was. It was. It it appears. I mean, if we have to accept that what the the, the band have said in their books, each individual member is very much the truth as as they see it. Sure. But in that instance that you're talking about, with the ice, after their first concert in London. And they're driving back up the M1, which is the main freeway in Britain. And they're they're at Luton, which is about 30 miles, so sort of 50 kilometers out of London. And yes, they have this fight. And Ian's mood slowly escalates. And I, I firmly believe it was certainly the first time that the rest of Joy Division realized there was another problem, whether he did I don't think so. I think he was probably aware that he had serious medical issues, but he hadn't been diagnosed. Mm -hmm. It was later that he got diagnosed when he started having much more regular fits, which the theory goes, and again, you have to be, you have to have more medical knowledge than I know. But as a layman, the idea that he was living this band-based lifestyle, late nights, smoking a lot of cigarettes, Mm -hmm. drinking a lot of beer, unreliable rest times, mm-hmm. a chronic lack of sleep, plus the anxiety of making it, because Ian Curtis was very, very driven, lest we forget. These did contribute not to his illness, but to an escalation of it. Okay. And and he got he, he, the, the formal diagnosis confirmed, not necessarily what everybody knew, because I don't think they did know, mm-hmm. but he confirmed that there was a serious problem which had to be dealt with. But he knew stuff was up. Even if you look at, say, She's Lost Control, Mm -hmm. which is one of the few songs he wrote that is based on factual events or other people who weren't him. She's Lost Control was written by a a client when he was working for the government in the unemployment office who repeatedly had fits. Mm -hmm. Hence, she's lost control. Mm -hmm. And Ian apparently, by all accounts, for all some of his later selfishness, was incredibly sympathetic and empathetic to people who had problems like that woman. And he tried to sort of find out where she'd gone and what happened to her. And I think it turned out that she died. And obviously it's a tragic story, like so many Joy Division songs were. But he, if you listen to that song, it's about someone else and it's about a a specific person. So clearly, clearly there is... Some kind of understanding of mental health issues from Ian Curtis. But you know, medical science and the understanding of mental health issues was very, very backward in those days.
0: Yeah. I wondered that too. I I'm curious. I want to read a quote that his wife, Debbie, says: people admired him for the things that destroyed him, which I yes. thought says everything right there. People were relating to his maybe the fragility but also the enthusiasm that he brought and the darkness and all of those things are what he couldn't, he wasn't strong enough to carry on. He wasn't,
1: he wasn't, he wasn't strong enough, but he, I don't think it wasn't that he was mentally, not mentally strong enough. Although when he began to to have the affair with the, the, the Belgian girl, then clearly there was some mental weakness in there, respective mm-hmm. of his condition. But I think Debbie Curtis was right. And... It, it's it's that question of what would have happened to him mm-hmm. had he had he lived yeah. because that would have continued. People would have continued to admire him for the things that were destroying him. Yeah. And you can say with hindsight, there's only one ending to this, but there might not have been.
2: Yeah,
1: I mean, he you know he had fantasies, and I, I whether they were just fantasies is hard to say. But he had fantasies of going off with either Anique, uh, his mistress, or Debbie, his wife, never that clear, to go and open a, a bookshop in rural England. You know, maybe that was just a passing fad. We'd all like to do that, of course. But it, it shows that he did, he, one, he was looking to the future, and two, he possibly saw a time when he wouldn't be singing, when he wouldn't be writing those lyrics.
0: Mm-hmm. There were a couple of questions about that, there- that relationship, that triumvirate of people too, that I was especially curious about. You, you say in here or imply that there, the perception is that Anik and Ian may have never actually had sex. That well, it might have just been an emotional relationship.
1: It's, it's. I mean, I think emotional. There's two. There's two sides to this. Mm. I mean, I think emotional relationship is much too weak a phrase for what they had. But Anik. many years later, and I quote her in the book, she's dead now, so she cannot speak for herself. And of course, she died of cancer, not a, nothing uh, mental mental health related. She said very, very clearly and very explicit that their relationship wasn't sexual because of the medication that Ian was taking. However, clearly, they were in a, a very intense Emotional relationship, which clearly involved sharing the same bed, and equally clearly, to use this continually use the same word in a very murky situation. Debbie thought that their relationship was sexual, mm-hmm. and um, without being flippant about this, she should know. Yeah, yeah, um, that's true. But, so therefore, you have two. You have two completely different sides to this. Mm-hmm. And the truth, the truth, the truth will, I believe, never be known. Debbie was clearly very, very upset by what was happening. But I can't see any reason for Anik to lie all those mm-hmm. years later.
0: Yeah, I wondered that same thing. And what a shame too. I I hadn't thought of it that way, but you're in love with somebody, but you're so medicated. I mean, I've take antidepressants in my time too. And they do mm. uh, thwart some things. So course, yeah. uh, that would be so difficult. Something else that uh, came up that, uh, in regards to that relationship is it sounded like uh, he famously commits suicide right before they go on an American tour. I think you say in there that Debbie had granted the divorce right shortly before this. So in a way I'm thinking, well, if the, if you wanted out of your marriage and into another relationship with Anik. You've just been given the license to do that and you still need to commit suicide. Maybe there was just no way of making him happy enough to stay.
1: I think granting a divorce isn't quite right. I think it's more she realized the situation that she was in and agreed to it. You know, she especially had a child to protect as well, Mm -hmm. you know, and clearly that it's not, not a child, a baby. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she has to think about that and she had a close relationship with uh, her parents too but you know Ian killed himself at the marital home where he was staying on his own of course there and he was going to America he wanted to go to America so the contradictions between him wanting to desperately wanting to go to America and wanting to be in the marital home and what happened in the conversations just before debbie left to work at a night shift and stay at her parents and everything then clearly those those conversations were i think quite heated mm. and again you don't you don't know what was said but it was obviously a very difficult situation but i think with Anik, Anik had gone on holiday mm. No, so clearly, uh, unless she's astonishingly callous and there didn't seem to be any evidence for that, then she didn't think there was any immediate danger of Ian killing himself. Yeah. I'd imagine, and you have to be careful here when you use words like imagine, but I'd imagine she thought that he was so excited about going to America that there wasn't uh, Anything to worry a problem. About her. Yeah. And he <laughs> saw in London just before he went back to America the, the evening or the day before that she went on holiday. Hmm. And... She's never suggested that she uh, suggested not going on holiday or that she was worried or anything of, of, of that nature. So, you know, you can say with hindsight, everybody saw this coming, but everybody didn't see it coming. They absolutely didn't. Even when Ian was staying with, with Barney or Bernard, or whatever we wish to call him here, you know, he was staying there. And the, the, a couple of weeks before he died, they went to the pub. And saw a pub comedian, and apparently Ian absolutely howling with laughter at the very physical comedy that mm-hmm. he was fond of. But Barney knew stuff was up. I think that night, or one of those nights he was staying at them, he took him through a, a, on a walk through a graveyard at night, and yeah. that's in the book. Trying to explain to him, and, you know, I think what must have been a very clumsy way. <laughs> this is where you're going to end up if you carry on like that. Right. Of course that was true. But again, the, the weekend that Ian killed himself, Barney was in, in Blackpool by the sea, 40 miles away. And he yeah. wasn't a man who thought anything was was imminent.
0: It just remains one of Rock's biggest mysteries and what ifs, um, what could have happened, why it happened, what was really going on there. We'll never know. It's a shame. You uh you mentioned in the book having seen them. How many times did you? How many times did you see Joy Division? And please explain to me what made them special, because I I like Joy Division a lot. I've yeah. never fully embraced Joy Division. I love New Order,
1: but okay. um what makes them special? It, I, I saw I saw Joy Division once. Okay. I, and I saw them supporting the Buzzcocks on a major tour because. You know, they geeked, they geeked heavily, but I was, I was young. I was underage. I couldn't go to, to pubs or anything. And I saw them and I had little bits about them. And it, what I'm telling you now sounds almost like hindsight, and, but supporting Buzzcocks, Joy Vision as a live entity, were so absolutely extraordinary. Mm. I was blown away. I knew very little of their material. But it wasn't this what I'm trying to say it wasn't a great insight. it was so obvious that mm-hmm. this was an astonishing group with an intensity mm-hmm. I don't think I'd ever experienced before. obviously I was at the right age to do that but it, it it was it was Ian of course Ian was extraordinary and of course he was doing his very frenzied movement but the but the point about Joe division is that, they were a four man collective. It was the whole thing coming together, playing these, what I still think are absolutely wonderful songs, but playing them with such, such also, such competence. They were great musicians as well. But they had, they had what, what the Joe the song, they had the spirit, they had the feeling. And there was something almost religious about it, I think. But it was, it was, it was so obvious, John. Mm. It was absolutely clear that you that this was something absolutely special. But I think the but to widen to widen your your idea, what made Joy Division so special? Partially it's Ian dying, and I don't mean this from an exploitative point of view. No. It's the fact that he that when he died, it left Joy Division with two albums and a couple of singles for mm-hmm. odd ep and uh, things that we talk about which are sort of much more peripheral mm-hmm. that's it mm-hmm. it's there in aspic it's yeah.
0: absolutely Stuck
1: forever. preserved mm-hmm. to perfection mm-hmm. and mercifully mercifully nobody's dug out a six version six disc version of unknown pleasures or closer with outtakes i don't mm-hmm. want to hear their outtakes yeah. Yeah. i'm not interested i want to hear the finished versions They're absolutely perfect so they are untarnishable Mm -hmm. they never got rubbish because they were there for two albums they did a couple of their early songs aren't great when they were too punky and too warsaw but once they hit their very brief stride that was it and they stopped at their absolute peak Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so it's just there it just exists and nothing can touch it and there's very 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 few bands or artists who are in that position, you know, yeah. people, people who die. I, I, you know, maybe you can quote Kurt Cobain, but the Nirvana catalog is much bigger and it's much less riven with quality. Mm-hmm. There's no quality dip in Joy Division True. for me, and I, I, and you know, maybe it's maybe it is an English thing because they didn't get the chance to go to America, mm-hmm. and I, the Americans didn't experience them in context mm-hmm. like like America did with with New Order. Yeah, but it perfectly preserved. Even if you say, you know, it's a stupid question, but what's your favorite Joy Division album? I don't know. <laughs> don't ask me. They're both absolutely astonishing, and it you know it helped that they had this amazing producer. Mm-hmm. It really did. They had Martin Hannett, who uh, rather mystically it said could see sound, mm-hmm. and that sounds. Idiotic until you hear Joy Division. Uh, wow! You know yeah. he created this world with them. With them, they didn't get it, of course. As it says in the book, you know, Hooky and Barney were shocked when they heard Unknown Pleasures, not in a good way. Yeah, but, I mean, very. Yeah. You know, they came. They came round. Mm-hmm. I think they were just surprised at the magic mm-hmm. that Martin Hannett had sprinkled upon them. Mm-hmm. And that's important too. You know, one producer. There's a, the two very different albums but Joy Division is just there. Yeah.
0: They're there forever. Okay, do you have a favourite Joy Division song?
1: <laughs> um, today, today I would say uh, probably Disorder, the song which uh, starts off Unknown Pleasures. I'm fond of Isolation on Closer, which, which is sort of, I think that's got the ultimate Ian Curtis lyric, you know, Please believe. believe I, I, I'm ashamed of the things I've been put through. I'm ashamed of the person I am. Mm-hmm. And just crikey, Ian, yeah, that's a bit strong. Except he's yeah. not, because that's how it felt. But ask me tomorrow, and I'll give you three or four more songs. the the The, the consistency mm-hmm. of Joy Division music is so high. It doesn't, to me anyway. It mm-hmm. doesn't matter. You just put a pin in it. Yeah, those two, yeah. Those two will do. Yeah. Yeah, I think,
0: I think Dead Souls is probably my favorite. Um, really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
1: I just... Uh, Dead it's- Dead Felt, that's, that's an interesting song because the introduction to it is so long mm-hmm. and it's just, and it's so wonderful. And it's just a reminder that, we, and it's easy to forget this, that Joy Division wasn't just Ian.
0: Mm-hmm. Without
1: Ian, and I don't mean in New Order, without Ian, Joy Division were an astonishing group.
0: Yeah, yeah. So okay so then the transition to new order there's a there is some lore in your book and in Hookie's book those are the only two I've read that them losing their their stuff getting stolen in New York City uh mm-hmm. while they're out on the club scene is what sort of sparks the new direction. Do you how true is that? What do you think that is?
1: <laughs> well I, th- I be- the truth I I wholeheartedly believe the fact that their equipment was stolen in Uh, I think it was in New Jersey. I I, I believe that without question. And I believe also that with this incompetent air, which hangs around some of the administration, that that they didn't get the the full amount of money back. They didn't get the goods replaced. And I think that having made movement, the first New Order album, which was in in, in effect what Joy Division would have been like if they were average, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. everyone realised that. Mm -hmm. And that this was a new way to go, partially because Bernard and to an extent Stephen were listening to new music. They were getting uh, enthralled by the the club scene in New York, the hardcore club scene. I mean, Where this came from isn't entirely clear. I think Stephen was very musically adventurous in a way that Barney wasn't. But I think they saw this as a way to stop being Joy Division if they'd have carried on in the movement vein it simply wouldn't have worked they would have faded there would have been a bog standard british indie band you people in the united states wouldn't have fallen in love with them Mm -hmm. and they wouldn't have ever established their own identity Mm -hmm. and it was i think it was uh, barney deserves a lot of credit for this i think it was his idea to have radical surgery on that sound and they went into this new york club scene of course hooky suggests that or, or implies almost that he was musically unwilling. But he wasn't unwilling to go to the clubs and have a great time. Mm-hmm. And true, to, true. You know, to, to drink and snort his body weight in in, in substances. Okay. He was there, he had a great time. I don't, I don't think anyone has ever had a better time <laughs> in the clubs of America than Peter Hook. You know, he did he and musically. He didn't care. And I mean that in the best sense. He just wanted his bass to be great and to fit in. And, of course, it was much, much later when he felt that his bass was being eradicated and played down that he got frustrated. He certainly wasn't frustrated by those early New Order dance records. He's a major part of them.
0: He is. That, to me, is the magic of of New Order specifically is the merging of Bernard's interest in dance music with Hook's heavy bass. That's what yes. brings them together. And you're right. By the time Republic comes around, there the bass is less featured. But I've, I've wondered while I was reading this, do you think, knowing the friction that Bernard and Hookie had with each other, do you think Hooky's bass is becoming less because Bernard wants him out? Or because the sound that Bernard hears in his head in Ibiza just doesn't include as much natural bass?
1: Ooh, I think that's a very, very good question. And I think there are there are elements in both of it. I mean, the sound that Barney heard in in Ibiza could have been more bassy had they wanted it. I don't think, and I think we must be generous here. I don't think he wanted to force Peter Hook out. I think he wanted to assume more control of the band
2: mm-hmm.
1: because I think there was there was a turning point. That he began to feel in control. He was the, he Barney guided them mm-hmm. towards mega status. Mm-hmm. But once they got to mega status, he didn't really enjoy it. He didn't play. He didn't enjoy playing the stadium gigs. He didn't enjoy trudging around Middle America. Mm-hmm. He got, I think, by his own admission, he got quite lazy
2: mm-hmm.
1: once the success came. Mm-hmm. But Peter Hook found. That as a devotee of the rock and roll lifestyle, that he absolutely loved playing stadiums. Mm-hmm. He loved the fact that New Order were getting bigger and bigger. And it's not that Barney wanted to make them smaller or sell fewer records. He wanted to do it on his own terms. Right. And I think that Hooky very much did want to live this rock and roll lifestyle, and he enjoyed it. And the friction came between their two lifestyles. But, it, you know, I'm not sure how different they really were. Mm-hmm. Hookie was very extreme and overt, but to say that Barney was some kind of angel yeah. is yeah. Uh, a long, long way from the truth, and I think that comes out. But So they both enjoyed it in different ways, but Barney clearly didn't like the drudge of touring,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and Hookie certainly did, and that meant that they began... To, to find faults with each other mm-hmm. in very different ways mm-hmm. and that of course was the, the, the seed of split. and Hookie too he didn't really want to relinquish the control mm-hmm. that he had you know he had much more control than a normal basis particularly mm-hmm. in the order when he had <laughs> Stephen who by his own admission was very passive he says at some point anyway the wind blows Hookie. Mm-hmm. and that may be self-deprecating but there's there seems to be an awful lot of truth in that. And likewise, Jillian, who's always compromised, or her place in the band was always compromised by being Stephen Morris's girlfriend. Mm-hmm. But also, she's not a particularly assertive character. She's right. the one who hasn't right. written a book yet. You know, <laughs> hurry, hurry along, Gillian. Let, let's we'd love to hear what you've to say. Sure. But and she was the one who put her raising her children before the band when the, the time was right for her. To do so, obviously, you know, her children had health problems, but she still made that decision to pull out completely. Mm-hmm. Other people don't, so she was, she was never a fourth of the influence in New Order. And you had a situation where two people were vying for influence. One was the singer and lyric writer, and the other was the bassist. And generally, there will be one winner in that particular mm. battle. Yeah.
0: Something that uh, I noticed in both your book and Hookie's book is the amount of drugs. I mean, Hookie it, is very open about his usage, but I think there's a perception maybe because Bernard, you know, he's not front and center in a lot of the videos. He's got his short haircut. He looks a little passive. That he, there's a certain, he looks like a choir boy, but he yes. parties just as hard as anybody else ever, you know? Yes. And there's a yes. dichotomy there that I don't think people quite grasp. Sometimes. Yes. It, I mean, it
1: wasn't, it, 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 there was never a dichotomy within Hook's behavior. No, never no, no. Hook, he looks you know. the part. So He looked the part. He was open about his use. I mean, particularly afterwards. It's very hard for pop stars to say, I'm in the middle of a fantastic cocaine binge, and I haven't been for the net last six months. Though, so, you know, you have to wait a little time. Like <laughs> no one in Hopkins no one in pop music is a heroin addict right. until it turns out that they are several <laughs> right. years later. You know, there's lots of practical reasons. You don't, be, you don't want to alert the authorities when you go through airports that you're currently enjoying the world's finest heroin of an evening. And um, and so but Barney, by the way, he looked by his sort of vaguely diffident manner, by his non-rock and roll manner, he got away with an awful lot of stuff but even now he's still he's very very coy about it Mm -hmm. and so a lot of his Mm -hmm. drugging and drinking is taken from peter hook's book the formal record of it and in his own book then barney alludes to it rather than dives into the the details and i think that's that's also a reflection of how both men are yeah yeah um okay we should get into because the
0: one of the other pillars of tragedy about these guys' story is the bungling of their finances. A lot of that I think probably has to do with Tony Wilson. He like some, you know, I've talked to people who um, have worked with Trevor Horn, for instance. I talked yeah. to Brian Nash, who was on, who was in "Tricky oh, yeah. Goes to Hollywood," yes, yes. and he both loves and hates Trevor because he loves him for making them famous. He hates them for taking all of his money, you yes. know. And that's kind of a similar thing I think going on with Tony Wilson. He just was not a smart businessman, but he was such a good promoter that he got them seen and recognized, but they didn't get to capitalize on this. I and mean,
2: it, well,
1: well, Tony, ahead. Tony Wilson was the the, the first. Proper person, you know, as opposed to me getting my ribs bruised at a Buzzcocks concert. He was the first popular person to recognize that Joy Division were special. He was also in a position to do things with them. He was mm-hmm. a major local te- television personality. Mm-hmm. He was on the screens of Northern England five nights a week, mm-hmm. six o'clock in the evening. Mm-hmm. You yeah, know, he was a very, very well known face, but he also had this ear for indie music and he promoted on these shows on television, a host of bands, people like Iggy Pop in his very worst phase. Mm. Tony Wilson was uh, his, his, almost his English representative or his Northern English representative. And he was a person who saw Joy Division, but he wasn't, I mean, I hate using the phrase, but he wasn't a breadhead.
2: Mm. He
1: had no real understanding of money. He had great dreams. He had great dreams. For his label factory, which is why no factory artist was signed to a contract.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And this caused incredible problems much later mm-hmm. when, when the factory desperately needed to uh, be sold to have some money going. There's no there was nothing there. Yeah. Literally nothing there because nobody had a contract. And he, I don't think he, he didn't understand that uh, bands needed a significant amount of money to keep going, particularly when they got bigger. And he used not so much Joy Division, of course, but certainly New Order as a cash cow to pay for his other projects. The other hopeless bands who were on Factory, there were some shocking groups on Factory. Never sell record, you know they'd never sell the record. Rubbish. <laughs> and he put lots of money in them. They were lavishly promoted because New Order was selling a lot of records. And there was the Hacienda too. Which is a, a major part of New Order's story, their demise, the demise of factory. And it's also a, a tale of hubris. It's a Faustian story that Manchester, this derelict industrial city that Joy Division conjured up these musical landscapes of. It's you know, Joy Division records sound like Manchester in the late 70s. That's why it's magic. But there was also the prospect of renewal of urban renewal and Tony Wilson had this vision of a nightclub the Hacienda and you know he gave it a factory catalogue number lest we forget <laughs> this, this nightclub would be the best club that had ever been seen and New Order would invest in it and profit from it and you know they weren't dragged along Peter Hook you know lost a lot of money on this he said look For all my life, because of how I look and how I dress, I have never, ever been able to get into a nightclub. The only way I could get into a nightclub was by owning one. (laughs) But but the problem was for all the money that was splashed on it, the hacienda was rubbish. It was a place where you couldn't A, see bands because of these giant pillars in the way, and B, you couldn't hear them because the sound system was so rubbish. So it had three phases. One, its opening phase, where it was losing money hand over fist. Worst, the worst venue you could possibly imagine. New Order were there every night, but they were virtually the only people who were. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly, you had the the house revolution, the the Manchester dance revolution, which turned the hacienda very briefly into the hottest club in Britain, literally queues around the block, New Order still there every night, which is actually the constant factor of the hacienda. And suddenly the hacienda summed up this growth in Manchester. The Happy Mondays, who were briefly a, a top-selling factory band before they got even more into drugs than, than New Order. They were part of it. I mean, Oasis weren't there yet, but there's a dance revolution. Uh, Mike Pickering of M People, he used to book the bands in the hacienda it was full night after night after night and it looked like that the order would not only get their money back but get enough money which i think probably tony wilson would want to invest in hacienda too um but then (laughs) then then you had the tragic third phase where the drug gangs moved in and the hacienda became quite a dangerous place to go and not many people did. The dance bubble burst, and you had a repetition of the first phase of the hacienda, but much more dangerous. There were guns. You know, we don't have guns in England. Guns were turning up at the hacienda. And it was very, very, very dark. And the gang culture destroyed the hacienda. But all nightclubs, particularly in, in Britain, I don't know if it's the same way you are, but they do have phases. There are moments where the hip is thing, and when that goes almost literally overnight, then that's the end. Yeah, the turnover yeah. in these uh, in these buildings yeah. is massive, and the hacienda is now uh, an apartment block. Mm-hmm. Which, really? Uh, okay. It's an apartment block. It's full of, it's flats in the centre of Manchester, which is partially one of the great northern cities. Still, there there is a boom and regeneration. And there's things like, you know, it's got a thriving gay culture and everything yeah. else, which is a partially a legacy of the Hessian. Definitely. Yeah. Um, but also, there's still a lot of deprivation, too. Yeah. It's a city of contrast. It always has been yeah. since, the, since the cotton days of mm-hmm. the, the, the 19th century.
0: Interesting. The story of why they were losing money every time, even though Blue Monday. Was what the the highest selling twelve inch record in history, and every time yeah. someone bought one, New Order actually lost money on that.
1: Can you summarize that story for us for anyone who doesn't know? The the sleeve to New Order's Blue Monday, which uh, at, at first glance is quite a a simple thing. It's a, it's basically a black sleeve with little bits of colour around it that of course is the the ignorant perception it means much more than that it's all computer code and everything but because they had to be hand pressed these sleeves certainly the first batch of them that meant that they were so expensive to produce that Every time a copy of Blue Monday was sold, New Order lost money. And such does bad luck in the New Order story. It it wasn't thieves like us. It wasn't (laughs) confusion. It was the best-selling 12-inch record of all time for any record to lose money. That is the one record in history, not by New Order by any act in the world that you didn't want to sell any copies of. And that sums up the nonsense that went on around New Order. You know, it was there in the, the luxurious factory offices where you had things suspended from the ceiling. There was no expense spared, but it was all coming out of New Order. And when they cottoned on, then it was partially too late. You know, they had to do deals with the tax authorities, mm-hmm. legitimate deals, of course, in, in order to avoid going bankrupt. Now, of course, the, the thing with, with New Order is that they can make money at the moment that they step out of the door. Mm-hmm. So it's not like some of the – maybe some of the other people on Factory lost money and couldn't get it back. Mm-hmm. And You know, the people the people who signed to Factory classical. Yeah didn't work well who would have that was a thing i didn't
0: even know that, that
1: was, yes they sent alan <laughs> erasmus who was one of the, the factory bosses they sent they sent him to moscow Oof. to investigate russian classical music to get <laughs> some uh inspiration before they launched factory classical you know that each record did well if it sold over double figures you know? uh-huh. <laughs> Nonsense, a nonsense concept. <laughs> but if you would have hadn't been success- so successful, they wouldn't have been able to finance it. Uh-huh, you know, uh-huh. there's irony and hubris abounding all throughout this this tale. Yeah, it's great. Do
0: you know when they signed to Quest? How how involved Quincy Jones actually was in this? I mean, I know he has. I mean, he's one of he's one of the greatest music minds, music legends of all yeah. time, and his interests are very diverse, but I'm wondering if he's the one who hears new order and thinks I want them on my label, or if someone else, a minder comes to him and says, you should look into these guys,
1: do you know? Yeah, well, Quest—he certainly wasn't Quincy Jones. Certainly didn't do the scouting.
0: Okay. Quincy Jones okay. certainly
1: didn't scout. There was a very effective a r department at Quest at that time. They had their ears to the ground because they were quite close to club culture mm-hmm. and They saw these records being successful in America. They saw the link between what New Order were doing and particularly Chicago House Mm. and particularly going back to some of those old Africa Bambata records, Mm. too. They saw that link and they chased them. However, however, Quincy Jones was not above the fray. Mm. Quincy Jones, who uh, still sends Barney a a Christmas card every year, bless, he had them round. He negotiated with Rob. They would play pool at quincy jones's house he got to know them he took a hands-on interest he did re- remix some of their work but they didn't you know they didn't need quincy jones they needed his license his yeah. his, his, his assent. but obviously quest was part of a major label group at the time but it wasn't but it wasn't a vanity label quincy jones invested in them mm-hmm. they I uh, it's a slightly crude distinction, but they were Quincy Jones's boys. Yeah. And that made that made a difference when you're taking these tracks to radio stations throughout every city in America. You know, if you can say or if you've got proof, for want of a better word, that Quincy Jones is behind these people, that gets your radio played.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Sorry, that gets your song played on the radio. Yeah. And it doesn't mean mean it's it's clinical or cynical. It just means it's there, and uh, there's no reason to suggest that he didn't like a lot of what they're doing. That's it's, great. You know, you can. There are tenuous links between some of the stuff that he was doing with, you know, with Michael Jackson. Some of the stuff that's on Quincy Jones' later solo albums. Mm-hmm. Not identical, but it's it's not a completely different world at all. Mm-hmm. No, that's true. Um, okay, do you have a
0: favorite New Order song? <laughs>
1: That now is it's different to Joy Division. there, is, there, there are uh, dips in the the way that there wasn't in
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, in Joy Division at all. I I'm very fond of thieves like us. Mm-hmm. They're great, dreamy, damn single. And I like Age of Consent too. Yeah. I like it. I like. New, there's, there's, there's sort of many different New Orders. When they get into to, to hardcore dance, I don't think it always works. Mm-hmm. When they get into kind of proper songwriting, whether it's dance or not, mm-hmm. then New Order really soar. Bernard's got this fantastic ear for melody. And when you put, in the, the, the earlier work, to put Peter Huck's bass onto it, mm-hmm. then you've got something that simply doesn't sound like anyone else. Mm-hmm. And you hear, you hear that dreamlike state in... in Things like us. It's incredibly yeah. beautiful. It's a gorgeous song. But in, say, Age of Consent, you know, when they pound, they <laughs> pound forth. That's really exciting. It is. There's yeah. a lot of excitement.
0: Yeah. In the order, I, I feel like Age of Consent is the perfect example of what made them special. It it uh, showcases Hooky's bass prominently as a lead instrument, lead guitar yeah. practically. But it maintains the dance rhythm, rhythms, and that, yes. I think, is what makes them so special. Yes. My, I think my favorite New Order song is the extended version of Perfect Kiss, because oh, those wow. last two minutes are just, yes. they give me goosebumps. They're so electrifying, yeah. you know? Yes, yes, yeah. Perfect
1: Kiss. I, I, You know, now you've mentioned it, I should have said Perfect Kiss, of course, because <laughs> you, you, you've, you've triggered something great. <laughs> You're right, that extended mix,
0: yes. the version
1: yeah. on the 12-inch, it's so exciting.
0: It is. It and it
1: really they they understood excitement. And that's why when new new order are not excited, yeah. Then I, I I feel a little bit cheated sometimes by them. But there's not much, you know, there's excitement all all the way through. Yeah. All the way through their career. Yeah. Even
0: I in getting, I mean, I own all their stuff and I listen to it regularly to get ready to talk to you. I went back and listened to it all yeah. in order again, uh, just to kind of reabsorb. I, I have to it's weird but i think first of all i don't think new order makes any bad albums all of them have some value they're just they're yes. lesser than others that have come before or been more revolutionary
1: but i it's, think that's that's very fair yes
0: yes surprisingly the my, i think my favorite album is get ready which is uh it's more of a rockier one but it, i think it's the most consistent to me it has no sl- no down tracks in my mind i guess.
1: I think I, I think that's that's quite a fair assessment. I think Get Ready is a very very misunderstood album. I think it's seen as just one that they they tossed off, and I don't think that that is entirely fair. I think there's a lot of good things in it, and you know if you listen to something like 60 Miles an Hour or or, or someone like you, I yeah. think they are great new order songs. There's a proper energy to it. Yeah. And, you know, because they, they had Steve Osborne producing it, then they never quite lost that sense of dance, even when they were going as rocky as they possibly could.
0: Yeah, I don't know what it is. I really love that one. So within the span of a few months, I saw Hookie live, and then I saw New Order live. Okay. And it was a very distinct difference in spirit, I'll say, of the shows. Oh hook, I felt like, well, he came and he played in a smaller club and he played joy division substance in its entirety, took a break and then played new order substance in its entirety. And it was just magical watching him do it. And then we saw new order in a big, you know, sports arena and, um, you, you love all those songs, but they could, have. it felt a little bit like they could have easily just pressed a button and blue Monday would have been playing it it, did, it didn't feel as quite as organic or as exciting have you had a similar or different experiences well i mean
1: the thing is is that I, when i i've not seen new order without peter hook mm-hmm. not 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 as a not as a statement just right. just just circumstances yeah. and i think that new order because they've got they they've got the band name they've got that Catalog and now they're sprinkling Joy Division songs in it, which Mm -hmm. of course is an influence of Peter Hook going live and keeping that catalogue alight, Mm -hmm. that they're not the underdogs. Mm -hmm. They're the big act. They're the big act who can afford and indulge in these often luxurious backdrops Mm -hmm. that they can make a great spectacle. Now, that might not touch you as emotionally Mm -hmm. as Satan did when I saw Joy Division or a lot of the early... New Order shows that I saw. But I think that's inevitable because you have an album, I'm sorry, you have a band with such a, a massive back catalogue
2: mm-hmm.
1: and people want to go and hear New Order play their hits. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that means that you will have, I think, a less discriminating audience. With Peter Hook now, playing playing with the light, then he's an underdog, as you said. He's playing smaller places. Right, true. And because he's an underdog, that brings... Uh, a different kind of spirit. He can never afford luxurious backdrops. He's yeah. out there scrapping with his bass close to the floor, <laughs> keeping this catalogue, wondering how he can play different Joy Division and New Order songs. Mm-hmm. And that's hard. You know, playing Substance, Joy Division and Substance, mm-hmm. New Order, that's, one, it's a long night. It and is. And two, sometimes he must think, what am I? I do it. And he, I don't think he would ever admit that. He certainly doesn't admit it right. in, in the book. And he's found a way to, partially to niggle away at them, because I think they're really disconcerted that he's doing that. They're not happy at all. You know, he's got the perfect right to do so. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm.
1: And I think the fact that he is scrapping brings something else to it. Mm. And I'd like to think that by playing... These songs that he didn't always appreciate at the time, that now he's come to realise, and he says he has, and I hope he's, he's being straight about this. He's come to realise how great these songs are, Yeah. and yeah. it does make him perhaps a little more of a, a nostalgia act. But he's a road warrior. Yeah, he needs right. to be out there in a way that uh, Bernard, Gillian, and Stephen simply don't, and never really have been. I think.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I hadn't thought of it that way, but I was 15 feet from Peter Hook, but I was on the other side of the room for yeah. New Order. Um, I have to take issue with one thing you said. One of my favorite New Order songs is Ruined in a Day, and you dumped all over it on in your book. I love Ruined in a <laughs> Day.
1: I've never, come to, I've never come to terms with Ruined in a Day, John. Really? I'm oh. glad you're sticking up. You, the fact that you're sticking up for it means you're right. <laughs> because you can see things in that song, which I think, I mean, very frankly, I still think it's quite lumper. You okay. see good things, you see magic in it. I do. You're right, John. You're <laughs> right. You can see you've got your magic eyes on it.
0: You oh, you're things. great. Thank you. That's great. Okay, one last little tidbit of information that I took from the book that I thought was interesting before I ask you about some other bands. Is um I thought it was really uh salient and interesting at the end when Bernard was explaining you know when we pay peter hook very fairly every time we he is involved in the royalties of everything we do and he gets his sum when we go on tour he makes we pay him the royalties but when he goes on tour he doesn't pay us those royalties and yes. i thought that is true i love i mean i'm on i don't know whose team i'm on i love them all together i awesome. wish they were still a family yeah, but um, i thought that was very insightful to get an idea that New order is sort of following the rules and Peter's out there as yeah. kind of like a pirate doing his own
1: thing. I, the pirate pirate. I think is, is a good word. I mean, I think this is why the, the new order camp are so one of the reasons why the new order camp are so frustrated with him that they do feel that they have treated him appropriately mm-hmm. financially mm-hmm. and that he makes good money
2: mm-hmm.
1: without lifting a finger. Mm-hmm. You know the fact that he, the fact that he is going out and playing a lot of live gigs, obviously reflects very well on him. And he's oh, he's almost a work, worker, I think. But it still doesn't alter the fact mm-hmm. that he can he can't say. I think that New Order haven't paid him properly, and this right. is of course one of the things that happens to nearly all the bands that band mm-hmm. members find out they haven't been paid properly. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that he fits into that narrative. Yeah. And you can see why they're exasperated. Mm-hmm. And of course, um, you know, he doesn't pay them royalties, but uh, Barney and, and Stephen and, and Ian Curtis Estate wrote those songs for John yeah, yeah. you know, They still, every, the Hook, Peter Hook keeping them alive does benefit them. That's much. true. Good point.
0: Yeah, you're right. You're right. And I think, too, uh, Peter is such a good quote. He's yes. such a good interview and he's so funny yeah. and insightful. Yeah. And yeah. Bernard is a little more coy and keeps to himself. That it's natural for fans to maybe gravitate or empathize more with Peter because he's the one putting his story out there most often, and he tells it so entertainingly. But if you really look beyond that, just at the it's it's just a mess from both directions. It's unfortunate. It
1: it is a mess. I mean, I you know, like Phil Cunningham has brought things into new order as 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 has Tom Chapman. And they've been in there a long time. It's quite I think it's quite disrespectful to refer to them as the new boys now. Mm-hmm. You know, they've been there for so long. And there's now no dispute whatsoever as to whose band it is. Mm-hmm. It's Bernard's band. Stephen and Gillian aren't going to give him a moment's trouble. Mm-hmm. They just don't seem to be interested in power struggles. And I think that's why they've, they've emerged
2: mm-hmm.
1: unscathed, mm-hmm. Yeah, because they haven't fought for it. And I, th- and I, th- I think Phil and Tom were clearly brought in on that basis, that mm-hmm. so they're not equal partners. But that doesn't mean that they don't contribute so much to, to the band. And they really do. But like you, you know, I'm not quite sure whose side to be on. I don't think I've got one. Yeah, I really I don't. don't. And it would be. It'd be very harsh if you were to get rid of the, the others who've been there for so long and who've yeah. kept New Order going. Mm-hmm. as well you know let's, let's forget that must give them credit these aren't villains of this story mm-hmm. at all tom and phil they're just not
2: no they're hard no.
1: workers they, they, they seem to be good people and they contributed mm-hmm. a lot but yes if they be- could could become a family again mm-hmm. then that's argument that new order aren't new order if peter hook isn't there mm-hmm. then I think there is some merit in that. I also think everybody knows that. Peter yeah. shouts it very loudly. Yeah. Yeah. But to, to say the opposite without denigrating the contributions of Tom and Phil, we know that, don't we? We know who New Order
0: are. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. Okay. So, well, okay. So we've covered the book, which is fantastic. Now, Back on September 25th, 2018, shortly after I had I talked to you the first time, I thought, you know, if John ever comes back on, who do I want to ask him about? And I started keeping a list on my phone.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and New Order was on that list. So we've just talked about them. We yeah. don't have to get into all of these. But I did, um, you know, so because I love hearing your opinions, whether they're on TV or whether they're here with me. And you've got, I was tell, I've was always tell my listeners, you've got almost 50 years of British music in your mind that you at least have an opinion about. And you're so eloquent with them. I love hearing what you think. So I want to throw a couple of names at you just to get your thoughts. It's funny, when I wrote this list, uh, Mark Hollis was still alive. Talk Talk Hi. is one of my favorite groups yes. ever. Their transformation, I think, is one of the most drastic and fascinating, but also wonderful in pop music history to go from where they started to where they ended. Did yeah. you ever interact with Mark Hollis or have thoughts on them, see them live, anything about
1: Talk Talk? I think, I think like, like you said, the transformation of Talk Talk is absolutely extraordinary. When they started out, you know, they were called Talk Talk, like Duran Duran were called Duran Duran. They were that poppy, synthy, new age group, new, sorry, new, new romantic group. And they were—they were, you know—they were there to appeal to that same market as Duran Duran. They weren't—they weren't as good looking, but they could scrub up pretty well. Mm-hmm. And no one could possibly have gone from A to B like they did mm-hmm. so quickly. And it was very, very rapid, even by their standards. And I think it's incredibly brave. Mark Hollis must have known that he was throwing away a potential pop career to make music, which at that time simply no one else was was making. You know, you can go back maybe people like Laura Nairo or whatever to that sort of abstract sound. And it was an incredibly brave thing to do. And Mark Hollis, lest we forget, he did take people with him. Mm -hmm. And people did get it. And people did understand. And you saw them live, as I did. It was, a, it was absolutely bizarre. It wasn't a communal experience. People were really in awe of what they were seeing and hearing. And it's something, I think, that you don't get from pop music. Mm-hmm. But he simply didn't want to, to play the game. And his way of not playing the game wasn't saying, I really don't want to play the game. It was by not playing it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He didn't do anything that involved playing the game. Every so often he would put a record out, very, very rarely. Uh, there was Mark Hollis albums, of course. Mm-hmm. And it's not so much he didn't play the game like he he, he wasn't part of the pop music industry. You know, of course he wasn't. Mm-hmm. But he was just out of every single loop yeah. going. And whether it made him happy or not, we'll never know. I never got yeah. to interview him, never got mm-hmm. to meet the man. Mm-hmm. And this this music, this exquisite music of such beauty and such picture painting beauty too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then I think it was truly special, and is and you hear people who you know have taken influence from him. Maybe people such as uh, John Graham, Boniface, mm-hmm. people yeah. maybe maybe people like that without sounding like him,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and that sort of abstract. Sound that way of constructing a song is Mark Hollis's legacy, but but I think Talk Talk and Mark Hollis are in grave danger of being forgotten Mm -hmm. because there is no one, oh, clearly no one can play that music, no No one's covering it really. And I think he's just it's his influence is there, but it's so unseen like it was when he was alive Mm
2: -hmm.
1: that there's a grave danger that this music will completely fade. I'd like to think 20 years down the line, it will be resurrected. And I believe I so. that will be the case. But you've got to be really clear when you're saying stuff like this, because it may it may not happen. But there's no one to fight for it. Yeah, There's no one to Good fight point. for his corner. Good point. Um, yep. and, and obviously, that's a tragedy. But equally, obviously, it does happen from time to time. And you also think that that's what he wanted.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm sure. A uh, few months ago, I interviewed Phil Brown, the producer, who worked on a lot of those latter-day talk-talk albums. And It was good to, he was, in his book, describes the scenery, all the lights are low, it's just some uh, oil lamps and, you know, candles and drugs and everything that's just to create this mood and songs are put together piecemeal by a yeah. lick here or a noise there or whatever that yeah. makes sense. It's fascinating stuff. Um, okay, speaking of another kind of, Mark Hollis-Type, who is still with us, Do you have you ever interacted with Green Gartside of Scritti Politti? Do you have any no. thoughts on him? Really, they're another one that I'm fascinated with. No, no,
1: another one. No, Green, again, you're all, the people that you're bringing up are all people who've made such great changes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Scritti Politti, Green Gartside, like, started out as a squatter mm-hmm. making uh, singles for the Rough Trade label, which they would literally glued together the the sleeves of these things by themselves. They were the ultimate Mm -hmm. cottage industry. And, yes, they are making quite gentle music. Mm -hmm. And, yes, it was surprisingly sophisticated for a lot of those faux punks who were going around at the time. Mm -hmm. But they had that sort of squat level of authenticity. But this also condemned them, I think, to being sort of permanent losers. People would never, ever sell a record mm-hmm. but then then when they, they put out the, the their album songs to remember on rough trade mm-hmm. and this had the sweetest girl mm-hmm. on it and it didn't sound like squatter music at all mm-hmm. it wasn't jagger it was really beautiful and it was like I think he was this was always what Green intended and it surprised people it was also very very sophisticated and clearly what Uh, green and scrittability needed was the backing of a major label Mm -hmm. they needed they needed a bit of money spent on them and this is what happened in their their massively successful pop phase now of course they were so far away from those indie roots Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but it's fair to say that unlike say, mark hollis that massive u-turn it wasn't a u-turn at all for green it was an evolution Mm-hmm. He always wanted to make this incredibly soulful very literate pop music mm-hmm. he certainly wasn't a pop star like any other pop star he didn't play the game although whether he did was because he didn't want to I'm right, really not sure about that either yeah. way yeah um, and you always got the feeling that his time in the spotlight would be quite brief a little bit like ABC
0: Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, who are slightly different but, but the probably the great parallel act mm-hmm. with them, coming from slightly different areas, but being indie and making that leap into incredibly sophisticated mm-hmm. pop. And I think Green, Green Gartside, is a, a great lost talent. Yeah, you know, He had a solo album out a few years ago and people did talk to him and they wanted to talk about his past mm-hmm. and it didn't really gain traction it wasn't great like his great work it was good yeah it was good and something something happened along the way i think maybe he just lost interest i've been dying to
0: know i've been trying to interview him for six years now and i can't ever break through he doesn't like to do interviews and um it's never happened but he's probably the top of my list i just find him fascinating where do you go when someone like that go disappears where do you go how do you pay your bills you still make music somewhere because I know they tour once in a while in little very, spots around the UK but very you know very rarely so what do you do easy,
1: Green if you've you sold if you if if you have sold a lot of singles and if you sold a lot of albums obviously the longer you sell them the more albums you sell the more singles you sell the better it is but he came from an era where bands were getting paid properly mm. so there will be income for Green ticking over Hmm. Okay. And it'd be, you know, reasonably handsomely like, that you can, okay. you know, say, I mean, the sweetest girl, which is someone rough trade, you know, Mad- Madness covered it, I think, didn't they? That's true. Um, yeah,
0: you're right. You know, Madness I'm covered about it. about that. It's
1: played on the radio. Some of his songs will have been on soundtracks mm-hmm. and things. And uh, again, you don't quite, you don't, well, not quite, you don't know how he lives his life. Mm-hmm. You don't know if his, his lifestyle is particularly draining on the financial true. front. True. You really don't. But even so, you know, he'll have earned some money since we've started talking. That's true. <laughs> you know, which is-
0: true,
1: true.
0: Well, I've got others, but I. This was. Uh, I just love talking with you, John. I. Uh, it's funny when. Um, when we talked the first time, you were bestowing all this uh, wisdom about conducting interviews, and I remember you saying, um, "When you, were, the important thing to remember is, you're not going to be these people's friends." You don't go into it thinking, oh, I'm interviewing Lou Reed. I'm going to be Lou Reed's friend. Now, I know we're not friends, but every time I see you on TV, oh. I think, I know that guy. And it makes it gives me and my kids <laughs> a warm fuzzy to know, I know that guy. I've talked to that guy. I love oh. it. Thank you, do,
1: yeah, John. We, 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 we can be. We can be. Okay. Can be good. Good. Thank you. Good I didn't want to be we're presumptuous. Chatting. We're chatting. It's not. I don't, it's not an interview. It's a chat between old
0: friends. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Okay. Good. Thank you, John. I wish. I wish you well. I love the book, and maybe we can do one of these again. In fact, we should when the Radiohead book comes out.
1: Yes. 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 When? When? When that'll be? I cannot say. Okay. Uh, I think it, it, I, it, I ought to get back on it, actually. You've reminded yeah. me. I ought to get back on the case. It, when so, I look fun. you
0: up on Goodreads, it says, I think that that book is slated to come out in April of 2022. But really? who knows where they got that information? That's no, what it says. It certainly says.
1: wasn't from me. I'd love it. To <laughs> it. But yes, that's good. Any, but any, t- any time you want to talk stuff and nonsense, John, you're okay. always welcome. I love always it. Great. Thank problem. you, John. Right. All right. You look after yourself. Thank <laughs> 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 you, John. Bye.
2: Take care. Bye now. bye, bye. bye. bye.
0: All right, there you have it. John Hazelwood. I love him. We ca- I gotta do that like once a year. Just have John back on, talk about whatever it is that's on my mind. This time, of course, since I had him, I had to work in some talk talk and Scritty Politti, but there's so many other bands and you know he's seen and witnessed and thought about all of it already. I love it. Uh, now this seemed like the perfect song to close out this conversation with ruined in a day the reason being if you couldn't tell that in the book he kind of trashes on this song a little bit i love this song so i had to bust his chops about it a little bit tell us what you think are you a fan of ruined in a day or not i'm curious he's also written another book on radiohead by the same for the same publisher we'll have to bring him back to talk about that one too and uh this publisher uh i'm we're, dave caruth my buddy and i we're recording another book club in a couple of weeks with the author of another book on another huge band uh i'll just tell you it's the who he, he wrote a book on the who similar in style i guess you could say to john's we're going to talk about him and the who and all of those things everything involved in the book and the band that's coming up in a couple of weeks that episode will probably be out next month okay anyway Thank you, everyone, for listening. Go check out his book. Again, it's out on October 7th, and it is wonderful. All right? Talk to you later.